Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arseblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much, as always, for being here. Hope all is good with you and yours. Just a week to go before the new Premier League season starts. If you're listening to this on Friday, we've got one more preseason game against Sevilla in the Emirates Cup on Saturday. And next Friday, we go to Selhurst Park to take on Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace. And we know how tough that is from last season. So lots to do between now and then. Well, in terms of preparation for Mikel Arteta and his coaching staff and the players on the training ground between now and then. Hopefully we come through the game against Sevilla uh, well, without any issues, no injuries or anything like that. And everyone is ship shape and ready to go for the opening uh, of the season. Uh, speaking of Sevilla and speaking of the game on Saturday, um, if you follow uh, Asa, uh, the Arsenal Independent Supporters Association, uh, they tweeted this week that as part of a memorial to Jose Antonio Reyes, there'll be a minute of applause or a period of applause in the ninth minute, because of course he did wear the number nine for Arsenal. Um, that's going to happen in the ninth minute. So if you're going along to the game and you want to pay tribute to uh, Jose Antonio Reyes, who uh, tragically passed away in 2019 in a car accident, and of course, uh, there's a connection between the two clubs because we signed Jose Antonio Reyes from Sevilla in January 2004, and he played a not insignificant part in our unbeaten season. A couple of goals, if I remember, there was one against Portsmouth and there was one against Fulham when I think Edwin van der Sar made a, a big mistake and Jose Antonio Reyes was part of that invincible side. So the ninth minute, if you're going on Saturday, put your hands together for Jose Antonio Reyes. And I also have to mention, before we get into today's show, the sad news that former Arsenal player and manager Terry Neal has passed away and I realise for many listeners, this will be well before their time, but Terry Neal was the manager when Arsenal won the FA Cup in 1979, and I've spoken before about what a, I don't know, what an indelible mark that game has left on my Arsenal and football supporting experience. Arsenal got to three FA Cup finals in a row. 1978, they lost to Ipswich. 1979, 
we beat Manchester United. It's the first game that I really, really remember. I remember watching the World Cup in 1978, being distraught that Holland didn't win the World Cup, but watching those games, watching the uh, the final Holland versus Argentina. But from an Arsenal perspective, the 1979 final was, it is and remains obviously the first game uh, that I ever really remember. And it taught me a lot about football that game because Arsenal were 2-0 up at halftime. Brian Talbot scored a goal. Frank Stapleton scored a goal. And it was 2-0 until the 86th minute. And it looked like Arsenal were cruising their way to FA Cup victory. And then Gordon McQueen scored a goal for Manchester United and it was 2-1. And Sammy McElroy scored a goal for Manchester United two minutes later in the 88th minute, and it was 2-2. And I remember looking to my dad, who was watching the game with me, just looking to him for some kind of explanation as to what the fuck was happening, because Arsenal were 2-0 up, and there was no time left, really, and surely we were just going to win the FA Cup, and that was it. And before he even had any words to try and explain the vagaries of football and the unpredictability of football, Arsenal kicked off, and they took the ball down the left-hand side, and Liam Brady, with his socks down around his ankles, played the ball out to Graham Ricks on the left-hand side. Graham Ricks put in a cross, and it went over Gary Bailey, who was the Manchester United goalkeeper, and there at the back post was Alan Sunderland to score a goal. And it was like, oh, this is a... I can't believe this. I I just, like, you're there, you're thinking, this is easy. Then you're terrified because you think, well, we're going to lose now because they've scored. And then all of a sudden, Arsenal scored again and Alan Sunderland wheeled away in the celebrations and we won the FA Cup. And it remains... I don't know how to explain it. I really don't. It's like a... It's like a footballing tattoo on my psyche, on my memory, on everything I know and understand and think about football. That is there. It will, you know, there are games that happened last season. If you ask me what happened, I could not tell you. Couldn't tell you who scored, or if you told me who scored, I probably wouldn't be able to remember the goal. But I remember this game, and I remember the last few minutes in particular, and I remember feeling happy, then not so happy, then quite sad and unhappy, and then ecstatic and over the moon because Arsenal had won the the FA Cup. And of course, next season, we lost in the FA Cup final to West Ham, and we lost in the European Cup Winners' Cup final to Valencia in the Heysel Stadium on penalties. But that game, I don't know, it's still there. It's just part and parcel of who I am, part of my Arsenal experience. And Terry Neal was the manager that day. So it's sad news to hear that he has passed away. So uh, condolences to his family and to his many friends and close friends. And thank you very much, Terry Neal, for for that. I'll never forget it. It is something special in my life. Yeah, it's only the FA Cup, say some people, but I'm telling you, it means an awful lot more than that when you're eight, nine years of age and you're you're sitting there watching on TV trying to figure out what football's all about. And that game, that game pretty much told me uh, everything there is to know and everything football can put you through in the space of 90 short slash very long minutes. Right. Let's get on with today's show. And I'm delighted to welcome back from the Evening Standard. It's Simon Collins. Hi, Simon. 
Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. It's kind of hard to believe that a week from today, if people are listening to this on Friday, a brand new Premier League season is is going to start. The summer seems to have flown by. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think it was a summer that we all thought might drag a bit without uh, the major tournament, the World Cup, we thought we'd get. <clears throat> but instead, it's actually gone really quickly. And uh, for me personally, I've been doing the Women's Euros and the final that's on Sunday, and then five days later, I'm going to be at Sellers Park. So uh, yeah. it's crazy, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, shaping up to be a good final on Sunday as well. It's a big story for uh, Leah Williamson and some of her um, the Arsenal women players uh, involved throughout the tournament, but uh, what a story for England. Yeah, massive. And you know, the whole tournament for the FA has been about getting eyeballs on the game and getting people interested, and there's no easier sell than England v Germany at Wembley in a major final. So I think for them it's great. And just hopefully for the FA, the lasting image will be Leah Williamson holding the trophy. And for Arsenal fans as well, what would what a start would that be to uh, to the uh, August? Yeah, it would be amazing. And look, they've had some uh, incredible advocates, you know, during the tournament as well. You know, when you have Ian Wright speaking up you know, about the women's game and about making sure that girls can play football and, and using the, the sort of goodwill that has been generated by England's progress in this, um, you know, on a more granular level, um, you know, it, w- it would be great for the women's game. Yeah, massively. And I mean, Ian Wright, I think, over the past sort of few years has become, for the women's game, a huge, you know, advocate. To have someone of that standing and with that, you know, voice and stature to be speaking on your behalf the way he does is brilliant. And, and I think people have seen during the tournament his level of knowledge about the women's game as well. And I remember I did an event a few few months ago at the Emirates and Ian Wright was there speaking, and I, and I didn't know what he was going to be like. I thought he was more there for the Arsenal connection, but his actual depth of knowledge can clearly see it's something he feels passionately about, genuinely passionately about. And I think as we're trying to get change in the women's game, to have a voice like his leading the charge is massive. And yeah, whatever happens after Sunday, um, I feel like things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, well, look, we'll see what happens Sunday, of course. And you say five days later, you're going to be at Selhurst Park and Mikel Arteta's got some work to do still to prepare his squad. But but some thoughts on pre-season, how you feel it's gone from an Arsenal perspective. Successful tour to the United States, good on the pitch, good off the pitch. Bit of a, a midweek game behind closed doors against Brentford, but it was sort of two B teams playing against each other and not necessarily a big thing, more about giving some of the, the fringe guys minutes. But overall, it feels like it's been a successful summer, not just from what's happened on the pitch, but the sort of mood that has been generated around Arsenal going into the start of, of a new season. It feels quite upbeat. And when you think about what the mood was like at the end of the season because of how it ended, because of how disappointing it was and, and what was up for grabs that slipped away at the end, you know, to to be this um, anticipatory, is that a right, is that a word? I don't know whether it is or not, but to be looking forward to a new season as much as this speaks to kind of what's happened and what they've done uh, in the transfer market and, uh, as we say, in some of those games. Yeah, and, and so often we go into the start of these seasons with Arsenal um, particularly transfer-wise, thinking they haven't done enough, they still need to get business done. And largely, if you look at this squad, I think you can argue, you know, they probably need a winger still, arguably another central midfielder possibly, but the, the major business has been done and done early, like particularly that number nine, that striker. You know, the whole of last season, we were saying, 
that is the big piece of this puzzle that needs to be found. And that was, you know, one of the first signings they did. Gabriel Jesus, he was in there right at the start of preseason. That was done. And Edu said, I think it was an interview did with ESPN Brazil, one of the last games of the season. You know, said, we've got a plan. We've relayed it to the owners. We can execute. And they followed through with that. You know, it wasn't just words. They've been able to get the business done early. And that's what's created the mood. I think so often fans don't have that excitement because they look at the team and it's the same team as before. They don't feel the progress has been made. But you've seen in pre-season, you look at the squad, you can actually see the progressions there. And, and I think the excitement for Arsenal fans is completely justified. Um, and so far, you know, the, the pre-season has been good. It's been steady and provided, well, it shouldn't happen this time around. You know, before that Brentford game, it was chaos with COVID and everything. Arsenal have had a pretty steady rise and I think Arteta will be delighted with the way the preseason has gone so far. Yeah, no, I would agree. I'd agree. And and like you say, there are potentially some gaps. You mentioned central midfield and um, I think there's concern maybe is not necessarily the right word, but, but Thomas Partey plays a very specific role in this team. And there isn't really anyone else who can do that job. And some people will look at that and say that is a a single point of failure, if you like, that if Partey's not there, if he gets injured, etc., um, as has been the case in the past, what are Arsenal going to do in that situation? And I feel like after two seasons at the club, Mikel Arteta has he must surely take into account the possibility of party being absent through injury for a period because it's happened every season. The question, of course, is like, what do you do? Do you get another party? Do you get someone who can do that job as well or nearly as well as he can? Um, which seems uh, a difficult way of doing it because if, you, if you've got a player of that quality, they're going to want to play more often. Or do you try and tweak things tactically with the players that you have in the squad. And there are central midfield options. I don't think Arsenal have an issue at this moment in time of of depth. There may be issues of quality, of course, but there are plenty of players in pretty much every position. So how do you view that particular one? Is it a case that you think, you know, if a few players go out, they could bring someone like Tielemans in, who's been long linked with the club, and that might give you a different way of coping without Partey as and when he can't play? Yeah, the, the party role is it's so specific what he does. And it's it's almost taken him, you know, two years to be able to do it as Arteta wants and as he wants to do it himself. So, and, and that's a player who is designed for that role. You know, if you think it's taken him that long, it's hard to find someone who can do that. Um, you know, and now El Nene does it a bit. I think we saw in patches towards the end of last season, he can do it. But would you feel comfortable him doing it for 10, 15 games? Mm. Um I mean, my personal opinion on it is it's something I, I don't think you're going to find someone of the necessary quality to do that party role who's going to be happy being the backup to Thomas Party. I don't think you're going to get that. I, I think what we've seen with a lot of the signings is this element of versatility and even Zinchenko sort of falls into that. And I think if you do bring a midfield player in, I just think what it will do is that you can find solutions without being light for light. You don't have to have someone to exactly play that role. You know, you could play a double pivot there. Um, I, I do wonder whether someone, you know, Zinchenko playing alongside someone in the two could work if you had someone like Tielemans who for Leicester has played a bit deeper as well. So I think what we need to see from Arsenal this season is having options to change things. I think too often last year, it would be a case of player X is out and suddenly the system sort of falls apart. I think mm. now the players they've signed in Jesus and Zinchenko means, particularly with five subs, you're going to need to be more flexible tactically. And I, I think that would be the way of solving party issue if he was out with injury or, or anything like that. What about the Bakayo Saka 
backup, if you like. Uh, and, you know, this again presents a, a problem or a difficulty for a manager. When you have someone like Bakayo Saka in your team, who's just so good, we all want Saka to sign a new contract. So let's say he puts pen to paper on a new three or four year deal that, that ties him down to the club. You know that week in, week out, he is going to start. Now, we all appreciate that playing him in every Premier League game and every Europa League game is not sensible and it, you know it just can't be done really but there is a desire to see someone to come in and, and share some of that burden with him this uh, suggestion Fabio Vieira could play a bit there as it stands Arsenal have Nicolas Pepe in the squad they've got Marquinhos in the squad they've got Reese Nelson in the squad whether those players are going to be there um, by the end of the transfer window remains to be seen. There could be some sales, could be some loans, et cetera, et cetera. But I think w- when people think about adding a winger or adding another forward, primarily they're thinking of somebody for that right-hand side. Um, but as I said, it's not quite as easy as just sort of bringing somebody in. When you've got a big squad, this 33, 34 players in the squad at this moment in time, I mean, it, it does feel like, this is uh, players have got to move before you can bring anyone else in territory. Yeah, and the squad's the squad's too big, and the thing that Arsenal have done well, at least um, in terms of helping Arteta get ready, is bringing players in before getting them out. He hasn't had to wait. If you look at someone like Leicester, who've not made a single signing, um, you know Rogers has been told we need to clear people off the books before we can do business. Um, the right winger slot. It's a difficult one. And again, I think it comes back to this idea of versatility. And I think that's where Pepe suffers in this squad. And I think Eddie suffered there a bit before where if you can only play sort of one possession and you know Pepe can only really play on the right. He's played on the left a bit, but his role mm. is basically as a right winger. And if he's basically stuck behind Saka and he can't get past him, I think when you looked, when they're trying to get Rafinha in, um, sort of indication given was that, yes, he could play on the right, but he could play as the number 10 if Arsenal wanted. He could play on the left. And if someone comes in, I think that's the sort of winger they would be who could play anywhere across those sort of positions. I don't think it would be someone who simply is a right winger, left footed, wants to come in. Because if, as we've seen with Pepe, you're just going to get a logjam where you're not going to be starting ahead of Saka. But mm. if you're a Fabio Vieira type who can play there, he could play as the number 10. I think when you sell the idea of them coming to the club, it's look, we see you as that sort of right winger. And if Saka's out, you'll be playing every week. But you could also play as the 10. You could play out wide on the left. So... I think that's the route you've got to go with the winger. I think getting an out-and-out player who just plays on the right, I don't think it's going to work, A, from the club, and B, mm. from the player, because you know the, the academy's golden child has, has got the shirt there. Yeah, well, that's it. Is there anywhere else in the squad you feel like Arsenal might be a bit light? Because uh, centre-forward is certainly one where a lot of the eggs are in the Gabriel Jesus basket. Understandably, he's a very, very good player, seems to have settled in really well, and everyone is hoping he will hit the ground running. You know, 25 years of age, coming in to sort of renew, if you like, after a a period at Man City where he was obviously very successful, but not necessarily the main man. And as humble as he is when he talks about, like, I'm not here to be the superstar, yeah, you kind of are. Uh, that's the job that we've got for you, and that's the job, the role we would like you to fulfill. Of course, Eddie and Kedia has um, signed a new deal. He's got the 14 shirts. So if we're looking at the striker situation, there's a very clear one-two pecking order. But again, it's a long season, and is there room for another striker, or is it a case that if you bring in that winger, then you've got options who can play 
perhaps as not necessarily an out-and-out striker, but somebody like Smith-Rowe, who we know can play as, uh, or Mikel Arteta has talked about playing as a false nine. Gabriel Martinelli could move in from the left-hand side, although there seems to be some reluctance on Arteta's part to um, to deploy him there. Um, it does feel just a little bit light at centre-forward. Yeah, I think it's it's maybe a tad light. I would... The interesting one, I think, will be will be Balogun. I know you touched on him in mm. your blog. Um, what you do with him, and uh, you would think for that first half of the season where you've got those six Europa League group games, you've got your Carabao Cup games, probably going to get around 10 appearances. You would keep him around then. Um, and then the second half of the season, as the sort of games shrink and become greater in importance, you maybe loan him out. But I, I get the impression that with Arsenal, they've sort of, particularly with Eddie, they've seen if their first choice striker is out for a period of time, he's quite comfortable being the number nine for, mm. you know, 10, 12 weeks. Um, and being in that luxurious position of having three centre forwards probably isn't something where the club are at, at the moment. I did, I did wonder when they missed out on Rafinha, if they would pivot towards um, signing someone like a Skamaka or a, you know, a tall striker and thinking, okay, we'll fill that, you know, right wing slot. We'll say Jesus can cover from there if Saka's out, and we'll give ourselves a different option by signing a big striker. But I think it's probably the situation they're going to be where they have those two, and that's what they go with. And then if you're in the absolute worst case scenario where you lose Jesus, you know, and Ketia, then you have to think of Smith Rowe or Martinelli. But that sort of situation would be incredibly unlucky, and I just don't think Arsenal are in that position at the moment where. They can have sort of three centre forwards on their books as they try and yeah. try and rebuild. I mean, that was kind of the situation last season with Aubameyang, Lacazette, mm-hmm. and Inkedi, and it was only really towards the end of the season when Inkedi has started to get games. Had Aubameyang not gone, had all that stuff not happened, you do wonder if he would have got much playing time at all. So it's that kind of balance, trying to find that balance, isn't it, between you know having the the depth in key positions. I also wonder sometimes if we as fans wonder like, well, if that guy gets an injury and then he gets an injury and then he, what are we going to do if that guy and that guy, you know, we, we, we can conjure up worst case scenario situations, you know, in our minds as Arsenal fans, in fairness, because we, we have seen that uh, plenty of times in the past. Yeah. And it's, you would be incredibly unlucky to use, you know, lose your two main strikers. Um, And if you look at some of Arsenal's, you know, rivals for that top four, I mean, Chelsea have only really got Kai Havertz as the the sort of centre forward this season, and they instead are going to invest in sort of wide players. Um, and the, you know, Werner can play through the middle if they have to. Sterling can play as a false nine. You, you look at Tottenham, just really Harry Kane, and then Richarlison can play there if he wants. Son can play if he wants. So, I think it, it, there's a lot of teams, and even Liverpool. You know, you've got Jota and Firmino, but then Diaz can play there, Nunez. So it's all about just having that versatility. We come back to that point of players who can cover in different positions. As much as it would be brilliant to have Mm. three centre forwards. I think if you've got ways that you can solve it, that's great. And um, I know all fans will think of the doomsday scenario, but even by Arsenal standards, it'd be incredibly unlucky if you're out with your two centre forwards. All right. I'm touching wood right here. um, (laughs) Just just to make sure that that doesn't happen further back. It looks like Bernd Leno is, is going to go heading for Fulham. It seems in a deal that uh, pretty much everybody expects to get done. I did see people talking about Leicester as well, uh, given that Casper Schmeichel is apparently um, uh, agreed. Is it Leon? I think, um, 
Yeah, Nice, I think. Nice, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, they may be in the the market for a goalkeeper as well, but at this point, it does look as if if Leno is going to go. Fee of around £8 million. How do you view that, given he is, you know, until... Last season, he was the number two goalkeeper for Germany, hugely experienced, you know, 350, 400 appearances for Bayer Leverkusen, whatever amount of appearances he had at Arsenal. I know he's in the final year of his contract. Um, It it feels like a decent price for Fulham, if not necessarily as good a price as Arsenal might have hoped. Yeah, I think it's a better deal for Fulham than... Than Arsenal, I think if it'd be if it'd been sort of closer to sort of ten, twelve million, which I think is what Arsenal were originally pushing for, um, I think it would have been better. But they are going to be getting you know significant wages off off the bill, um, and and the position they were in with with Leno is now he's now effectively the, the third choice keeper with a year on his contract. And if you you take away the you know the fact he is a very good goalkeeper international ever, and just just said look. Arsenal are going to sell the the third choice keeper this summer, and they're going to get eight million. I think most people would go, okay, you know, that's that's a pretty good bit of business. But um, I think it'd be a very good signing for Fulham as well. I think you know to get a goalkeeper of that experience when you're newly promoted mm. um, is quite a coup for them. And I think for him, he was he was quite keen to stay in London, likes playing in the Premier League. You know, wants to get back in the Germany squad and playing at a team where he's probably going to be very busy. Um, should be a good way to do it. And as I think we've seen over the last year, uh, he's also a very good person in the dressing room. Now, there was no indication of him throwing his toys out the pram. Obviously, disappointed to lose his spot to Ramsdale, but no sign of dissent. Trained well, helped Ramsdale, knuckled down. And um, yeah, I think it's probably one where he'll go with the club's best wishes and, and he'll get the move he wants. Yeah, he always struck me as the kind of goalkeeper that, that would thrive at a... I don't want to say a lower league club, uh, but a club who defensively, I mean, to be fair, he had periods of, of that at Arsenal, particularly <laughs> during the Unai Emery era when we were uh, shipping a lot of shots and he looked, you know, very good because he was really, really busy. It's it's the kind of club where, you know, he is going to be busy. He's going to be tested week in, week out. Fulham are going to, you know, if they survive uh, a season in the Premier League, they're going to feel pretty happy with that because of the way they've yo-yoed over the last couple of years. So from that perspective, you know, it, it does feel like the right kind of club for him, leaving aside the Premier League aspect of it. The fact that he is that kind of a goalkeeper, I feel always felt like he he just needed to be busy all the t- all the time. You get some goalkeepers who can just switch off; they can immediately switch back on. Um, I, I felt at times there were elements of concentration that that didn't go quite as well for him. But this, you know, it seems perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but he is a good he is a good shot stopper. That's his his main sort of strength and most of those sort of top six goalkeepers now have a certain way about them and a way of playing out from the back. And I don't think Leno really, really suited that and ever properly got on board with, Mm. you know, the way that Arsenal want Ramsdale to play. Um, And I think he actually more suits a team who play a bit more as a conventional goalkeeper, you know, focus on sort of, you know, on his shot stopping rather than his distribution. And I, I think he probably could have got to a higher a higher place in Fulham. You know, I would have thought someone around sort of, um, you know, that mid-tail mark. I thought when Newcastle were looking for a goalkeeper, I did wonder if they would go for mm. go for Leno. Obviously, they went for Nick Pope instead. But, um, yeah, I, I think he'll be a very good signing for them. And, um, 
yeah, should be a, a good player for them to bring in as they try and try and avoid relegation. Uh, another player who came at the same time as Bernd Leno in that summer, that 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 Sven Mislintat summer, which you know, looking back on it, didn't really work out um, <laughs> as well as it might have when you look at some of the names: Socrates, Licksteiner, uh, Genduzzi's already gone, um, but Lucas Torreira, a, a guy who's kind of in limbo a little bit, um, where. The clubs that are interested in him, or if there are clubs interested in him, um, don't seem to have a lot of money. Valencia is the one that people are talking about at the moment, but they're absolutely uh, flat broke and uh, can't even pay their own players. So I don't quite know how they're bringing in um, new signings. Maybe they've got some advice from Barcelona on that. I'm not quite sure. But, um, you know, what, what, what do you think about what Arsenal need to do? What What is the responsibility of Arsenal in this scenario for uh, someone like Torreira because he doesn't want to be here. Arsenal don't really want him. Um, everyone would be open to a move. But at the same time, you know, players, as horrible as it might sound or businesslike as it might sound, are assets. And there is a responsibility in some ways to get as much as you can in order to take that money and reinvest it in players that you do want and players who can give you a helping hand. Uh, and we've seen over the last couple of months or a couple of years, um, maybe the last 12 months anyway with Edu, and we'll talk about this in a bit more detail in a second, but, um, you know, the facilitating players uh, for a move elsewhere, which is maybe in the best interest of the player, um, maybe to some extent in the best interest of the club if you're moving on somebody who's problematic or who isn't quite the personality you want around the place, whatever it might be. Um, but financially, it's not great. It's not a great way of doing business. So, you know, how do they how do they weigh up situations like this? Because the the longer you keep doing these kind of deals, the greater the perception grows that you will keep doing these kind of deals. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, when they had that sort of first you know, mutual termination of, of the contract. I did sort of think slightly at the time, as soon as one player has seen this, um, everyone else is going to be thinking, you know, why can't I get that as well? So it's, it's a difficult one. When you set that precedent, people mm. are going to follow it. And yeah, for Torreira, I think they've been, they've been fairly accommodating with him. I think, I think a few years ago, he was really desperate to go, to go play for Boca. So we'd be back in South America near his family. Um, and it, you know, it, was, it was, became abundantly clear that just wasn't financially viable in any possible way. Um, and he has struggled a lot with living in England and, and the homesickness. And Italy is where he has felt more at home. And Spain, I think he would as well. So, you know, all the times they've loaned him, he's begun to Spanish or Italian clubs. Um, and again, this summer, I think it, it was the, you know, it was clear. I think everyone thought that Fiorentina were, were going to activate that, that clause to keep him. Started haggling over the fee deal breaks down and he's left in limbo, you know, and goes on the tour and then had to leave the tour. I think feels like we're one of those with that, where they're in an exceptionally difficult market where he's, he's, he's not even someone who's, you know, I think the other players that Arsenal have got back this summer that they're trying to shift, you know, the Maitland-Niles, Bellerins, you sort of seen them a bit in pre-season and there's an, an inkling you can give to other clubs that, you know, this guy could stay, we'd keep him for a year and let him go for free. Whereas with Terrell, it's almost, got to that point where he's not even with the group mm. um, and that's from a selling point how do you sort of stand that and how do you try and say to them you know give us a fee for this player um, it's a I kind of feel like it would more be at a point where you know he ends up either going on loan another year and you try and get his wages paid and then he leaves for free which is mm. which is disappointing but 
it's a, it's a situation Arsenal have been in for a few years. As much as I think Edu deserves a lot of praise for certainly the, the spending they've done. I think this window looks very good. Last summer, very good. If they want to become self-sustainable, which the Cronkies definitely do, they want it to be a self-sustainable business. The selling needs to be to be much better. It's a tough one as well because you use the loan market to maybe put players in the shop window. And Torreira had a pretty good season at Fiorentina. He was their player of the month three or four times, you know, played regularly. It wasn't like the previous season when he went to Atletico Madrid, a club you thought would really suit him, but it just didn't. He only played 600 minutes, something like that in, in La Liga, but he had a very good season in, in Serie A. And there still aren't really any takers for him. Um, so while I'm with you, I mean, I think it's it's important that Arsenal change the perception of who they are as a selling club. How much more can you do than send the guy out? He plays well. I know you had that agreement with Fiorentina, but if that breaks down, there must have been other clubs in Serie A, whatever, who who saw him and thought, okay, we, we could do pretty well here. I mean, is that reflective of the market or is is it, you know, something that feels anyway unique or specific to Arsenal? I think it's a, it's reflective of the European market, certainly. Um, I mean, if you look at the Premier League clubs, the spending there hasn't really stopped because of COVID. It's sort of just carried on full throttle. But within Europe, there's a lot less money being spent. And I think we're seeing it more with, with sort of Premier League clubs, certainly now than we have in previous years, that when they're trying to shift the, you know, quote-unquote, dead wood, the market to sell it to isn't really there that it's been in the past. And um, you could see a case of more, of more clubs being what Arsenal having to do and sort of cut their losses and say, look, let's get rid of that, this person. And, you know, I think Edu spoke very well to the guys in the US about that, of the, the balancing act between the financial cost, but also the cost of the environment. You know, if you keep these people around who don't want to be here, they don't want to be part of the group. Mm. And you, sometimes you have to see it as an investment to get rid of someone and cut your losses and say, look, we need to get this done. They've got to clean the house. Um, and I think Arsenal are almost at the end of that period. If you look at that squad, it's pretty much all the players that Arteta brought in or wanted to be there. So they shouldn't really be having to go through this process again. And also the age profile of the squad, as Eddie pointed out, is much younger. So players mm. are easier to sell. But yeah, it's been a really difficult time. And for Arsenal, they've been doing it in the worst period possible. You know, during COVID, when people haven't got money, it's not a time to be trying to do a mass clear out. You talked about Edu and, and the interview that he gave to the guys in the US. And I think, you know, there were parts of it where he he really was very open. And I wonder maybe, was he a bit too open when he talked about the difficulties of players? Because he was very, very clear. He said, if you've got a guy who's over 26 and he's at Arsenal, he's on big wages, he's not performing. I think what he said was that kind of player kills you. They kill you. Um you know, and I get it. I mean, I know precisely what he's saying, but I do wonder as well if while you're trying to move on a few of those players, being quite so public about it is uh, counterproductive in a way because people will look at that and say, well, you know, if he sees it as an investment to just let that player go or go to the board and say, we pay this player to go away or go somewhere else. Like, I think maybe Hector Bellerin is a good example of this. Um, he had a good spell at Betis. He wants to go to Betis. Betis are, um, you know, not exactly cash rich or anything like that. But there's the Arsenal technical director on the record saying, 
basically about a player of, of Hector's profile. He's over 26. He's on fairly big money, particularly in comparison to what the wages would be in La Liga. Why are Betis going to do anything other than wait it out? You know, I'm sure Hector will do his part. Uh, I've seen stories about how he's willing to, you know, take a pay cut and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it does make your job more difficult when you're that frank about it. And some will say, okay, look, that's just the reality of the situation. But maybe, maybe you got to play the game a little bit, a bit more subtly, if you like. Yeah, he was incredibly honest, Eddie. And I think yeah. um, I, I personally very much enjoyed it. And maybe that's me with my media hat on and, and liking someone, you know, being interviewed and being brutally honest and opening up and and not just, you know, sort of filling filling the pages with words. But I, I was surprised at the sort of, you know, the way, um, yeah, the use of the word saying those players were sort of killing, killing the club. Mm. Um, and perhaps that's maybe a bitterness of, of everything that went on in the, in the past. But for him to speak so sort of bluntly about those players is, is pretty strong. On the same side, you know, sometimes when you see interviews like this where sort of almost calling someone out, you know, attitude and things like that, I think it's, it's quite telling if you don't hear anything back in the sort of coming days from the people involved. A, it's because they don't want to get involved in a slanging match or B, it's because there's an element of truth to it and they, you know, they don't want to go back and forth at it. But um, that, is, that is right, certainly what you say with um, with clubs who would have read that interview or seen that interview and, and are negotiating with Arsenal they've seen the precedent of, of Arsenal are willing to pay these players to get rid of them if if they can't find the right club. Um, and when they're on the big wages, someone like Betis, you know, not going to pay Hector what he's being, being given by Arsenal of over £100,000 a week. Simply can't do it. But I still think for Arsenal, they need to stand firm as much as they can. I think that's why we haven't really seen the outgoings happening as quickly as they could have done. I think Leno is an example of that where, you know, I think Fulham been trying for pretty much all of July to get that deal done. Uh, and I think only now they sort of got to a fee that both clubs could agree on and Arsenal probably could if they wanted to taken, gone to a much lower fee from Fulham and got it done earlier on, but they've tried to hold firm and get a fee. And I think that's why at the end of the window, we'll see things moving a bit quicker where these sort of smaller deals can get done. Um, but it's going to be a test of Arsenal resolve. And it's also going to be a test of Edu. Um, yeah. And it's an area, area I think everyone would agree needs to be handled better by the club. What about a couple of young players, a couple of young English players who who aren't necessarily in that um, over 26 on big wages, killing you uh, bracket? So Ainsley Maitland-Niles has been playing a part in preseason. Reese Nelson playing a part in preseason. Both of them with a year left on their contracts. Both of them have had loan spells. Um, You know, Maitland-Niles went to Roma. I don't know that it went particularly well, but at least it sort of got him out there and raised his profile a little bit. Reese Nelson's loan at Feyenoord started poorly but ended pretty well and when you talk about how we view Edu when we talk about the the work that he does and and seeing signs of improvement in that sense are these two deals um, indicative of of where he should be able to get reasonable fees they're English uh, Maitland-Niles has played for England in England International even if he's not presently you know these are the kind of deals where even with a year left their their Englishness their ability to slot in and adapt to Premier League clubs 
uh, even if these deals go right to the death, and I think you're right to say a lot of stuff will happen in the last couple of weeks of the of the window. I think it's going to be pretty hectic. Um, you know, can you use those deals maybe as a marker of of what Arsenal are capable of as a selling club? Yeah, I, I think they're two players they should be getting. Certainly, Maitland-Niles getting getting fees for, um, and and they're both sort of players. An example of you know selling at the right time. I think Maitland-Niles, you know, a few years ago, you could have got a much better fee. Um, mm. possibly the same with Nelson, you know, after he had those good loan spells in Germany, but maybe that was at a time when, certainly when Arteta came in, the plan was to give Nelson quite a big role and he had really big plans for him. And mm. Nelson might get a bit, had a bit of a chance in pre-season because that right wing slot is open to try and get that spot for the Europa League games and try and turn his future around. But the two players, I feel later in the window, you'll find clubs sort of sniffing around them, you know, championship, lower Premier League clubs, being brutally honest, they're not players who I would have thought at the start of the summer clubs on their shopping list said, yeah, I want to get Ainsley Maitland-Niles and I want to get Reese Nelson in. But come the end of August, they might be two players saying, yeah, we need a central midfielder on oh, Maitland-Niles at Arsenal. We could go and get him and, and bring him in. So, yeah, I think they're players you can get fees for and that Englishness and selling them at the right time and using loans to drive values of player and improve them. I mean, Liverpool, I always, every time this window, I look at the fees they're getting for players. Yeah. You know, Neko Williams, he did have a very good loan at Fulham, but £17 million to Nottingham Forest. Um, look at Minamino, came to Liverpool, had an okay spell of your appearance, you know, getting nearly £17, £18 million from Monaco for him. Um, it's about sort of creating a value around players and creating a sort of an image of, you know, had them being important to you and them being driving value. And I think what we'll see hopefully from Arsenal over these years is Ben Naper, the loan manager and, and Edu, when they loan these players out, which I think Nelson's done has improved his value at Farnord. Balogun, I think if he gets another loan, will improve his value instead of having someone like Eddie, who basically didn't really get a loan. He didn't really go up and you got to the position where it was either he goes for free or you keep it. Yeah. I mean, how do you, you mentioned Liverpool, and I think that's an example people have used in the past about a club that sells well, where you've got this, you know, Bournemouth will come along and buy, you know, someone who's made three appearances and never scored a goal and they'll pay 20 million for him. I mean, is that a club that sells well, or is that also to do with the profile of Liverpool and where they are, you know, year after year in the table where being successful, being competitive means that people have a different view of the players that you have in your squad. So if you're finishing first and second every year, if a player can't get into that team, it's not quite the same as a player who can't get into a team that's finished eighth a couple of times and and then finished fifth. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that. And I, and I think there's an element too of you know, players who've worked under Klopp or been part of that system and environment um, and I think it's the same at City as well. You know, players who can't get in the City team, but they've worked with Pep and they've been there, they're going to hold a good value. And City's academy, we see them selling players off now and getting very good fees for it. Um, I can remember Chelsea when they were sort of Premier League champions or near the top of the table would get very good fees for academy players as well. Um, that does definitely come into it. It does definitely make a difference. Um, but I think you can you can do it better than Arsenal have been. But yeah, if you've got that prestige of being this guy was at the Premier League champions. Mm. Even if they had a small little role to play, it's going to add a few zeros to that that price tag. 
Well, look, uh, it's all ahead of us to see what happens between now and the end of the window. Final thing I just wanted to talk to you about was, um, you know, someone who covers Arsenal week in, week out, and you see sort of a little bit under the curtain, if you like, uh, doing your media duties. Uh, we saw Edu doing these interviews, did them with Sky Sports, did them with some of the, the reporters uh, who were there on the tour. It isn't normal, really, for a technical director to be that public and to speak so openly, uh, for better or worse. Um, you know, and I, you know, as a fan, as somebody who writes about the club, it's great because you you do get more information. You can all make your own mind up about, you know, what he says, how he says, how you perceive the things that he said and done, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at least you have that. A lot of other clubs, you know, keep things pretty secret. Uh, secret. But this is on top of you know what's coming up with with Amazon with All or Nothing. Um, the club have also done their own um, documentary series, which I watched the first one of, uh, Inside Hell End. So it's giving us a, some real insight into what happens at academy level, the way that players are trained and, and everything else. And I'm not saying it's necessarily unusual for Arsenal, but it is a bit different, isn't it, to be that open and to be that public about certain things. And of course, you, with the Amazon documentary and with their own in-house uh, productions, you, you you put across the story you want to tell. Um, it may not be uh, warts and all. Um, you're going to have to show some things that don't go quite as well as, as they would. That's, that's normal, but you're not going to see the worst of things. Um, but I mean, how do you view what's, what's going on at Arsenal and this this new direction, if you like, because they have been and can be and still are in many ways quite guarded about what they want out there and what information they want out there and how that information is disseminated to to the fans or to the media, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I've always argued, personally, I feel like Arsenal have been, from a sort of PR and comms point, have been too sort of reactive to to things happening and, and, and letting sort of situations ruminate within the public and it take its own course rather than being front foot. And I think we've seen a, ch a change in that, particularly with Edu um, and this interview. And I was chatting to someone the other day saying, you know, you've gone through all these terminations, people are going to have an opinion of it. But if you stick Edu up, your technical director, and give him the opportunity to explain to people, this is why we've done it. This is what's happened. You can at least f formulate, the, you know, the direction of the conversation and, and the topic around it rather than just having you know, hysteria on social media, everyone saying anything. If you stuck someone up to say, look, look this is why we've done it. We're explaining to you directly why we've mm. done it. And I think Arsenal, certainly over the past year or so, and I think Arteta's helped that in terms of communicating with fans, have got better at doing that rather than, you know, as you say, being more reactive. I think they have got a bit more front foot in their approach. And I think when, after the Super League and everything that happened with that, um, where a decision was just made and it just popped up on the website at midnight that Arsenal had left, I do think with now there is a, an understanding that when you do something, you need to communicate why you're doing it. You can't just do it. Mm. Um, and I, for one, think it's a much better way for Arsenal to operate. Um, there's a limit, certainly, of being too open with stuff. And I think even with the documentary, you'll see that it won't be as open as, you know, everything behind the curtain. But giving people an understanding of why things have happened and why they take place will make a big difference. And I remember Xhaka... I think sort of months ago when he did his players' tribune column was sort of saying big thing he liked in Germany was fans coming to training and seeing you during the week because they sort of got a bit more of an understanding of everything that was going on rather than just 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, and I think everything we're seeing a bit from Arsenal is trying to sort of educate fans and explain to fans why things are happening. And for me, I think that's a good thing. I think it will make a difference. And um, 
it's better than staying silent, that's for certain. For sure. I mean, how, how much do you put it down to, you know, the the Arteta desire to build the connection between the fans and, and the club? And we've spoken about this a lot in the podcast, and, you know, I'm sure you've written about it as well, where, you know, when he came in, it was maybe a broken club is quite the, not quite where uh, I should be, but, but certainly things between the fans and the club were in a very difficult place. Um, I mean, do you think he's driving a bit of this? Maybe decisions, not necessarily saying, you know what, we should do an Amazon documentary because I don't think that was down to him at all. Um, I think he said that himself, that this was, you know, a decision that was made above his head. But even stuff like the Edu interview, where they feel like they can communicate and should communicate, is part of this broader idea to to sort of bring everybody into the fold and, you know, you've been there in difficult times and you were there last season during some difficult times as well. But I think the reaction to the difficult periods last season was certainly different from previous seasons where everything felt absolutely catastrophic and where, where things went wrong or where things were bad last season, there, there was a desire, I think on behalf of the fans to try and support and lift and, you know, uh, generate a comeback or whatever it is. So, that kind of feeds into what's going on with things like this, the HLN documentary, um, and whatever else might come in the future. Who knows? You're you could be uh, you know, out for dinner with Josh Kroenke by uh by the end of next week, you never know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I was interesting, I was listening to the the podcast you had with Rob Kelly a few weeks ago, obviously worked for Arsenal and him saying on that that Arteta to the media team saying deriving this idea of, you know, we need to communicate with fans, we need to connect with them and I think part of it was lost, obviously, when Wenger went. I think Arsenal were lucky and could almost rely upon having him as that sort of link with the fans. You know, yeah. he just did it so naturally and seamlessly that you didn't really, you didn't really need to think about it. Wenger would just do it. He would just bring everyone together. And I, I think you're, you're fair to say in that period when Unai came in and before Arteta came in, was there much of a sort of sell or an explanation to the fans about why they've gone with Emery? What's he bringing in? Trying to sort of learn a bit more about him as a coach. You know, it was difficult, obviously, with him not speaking the language, but it just kind of felt like it was left to its own devices and think, oh, people will, you know, they'll fall on board. They'll fall in love with this team. They'll get the connection. Mm. And I kind of feel like Arteta, there was a bit more of a reset and him saying, look, no, no, we actually need to work at this. You know, this is something you've got to put the effort in. You've got to try and build it. And particularly after that COVID season where, you know, the fans weren't there. I think we've we've seen, even from his dealings with the media, I think he, you can tell the way he, you know, sort of speaks about, speaks about the fans and how his understanding that if he doesn't have that bond, it's just not going to work for him and he won't yeah. last long. And, and I, I, I really do think the atmosphere at the Emirates last season was the best I've seen it for, for years on end. Like I remember being at games, that Wolves game where they went 1-0 down and he sort of sat in your seat there thinking, oh God, and actually the place actually cheered and got up and was sort of behind the team, which was, you know, in years gone by, it wouldn't have been like that, but they've mm. they've really got behind this team. And I think for Arteta, he's the reason for that. And he deserves a lot of, a lot of praise for it. Yeah, I think if you see the human face of players i thought thought what jack said was really interesting as well you know to to sort of have a little bit more of a connection than simply um 
matches and post-game interviews, which are, you know, nigh on worthless anyway, if you can humanize the players or if you feel like you can connect with them on a human level, it's much easier to get behind them as a team. Um, so there you go. Right. Well, look, we'll see what happens. Uh, Simon, as always, great to talk to you and we'll catch you again soon. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you very much indeed to Simon. You can find him on Twitter. He is at SR underscore Collings, at SR underscore Collings. Right. Well, there you go. That's just about that for today's show. Uh, the game tomorrow we will cover on the site, of course, on Arsbug News. We'll have Match Report and all that kind of stuff, and uh, we'll talk about it over the weekend, I'm sure. Just to remind you that you've got less than a week to sign up for our Patreon Fantasy Football League. First prize, 500 euros in cash, and an Arsenal shirt as well, and we've got prizes for second, cash prizes for second and third, plus Arsenal shirts. Our fourth place gets the fourth place trophy. What else would you expect? If you want to sign up, you've got to do so before Thursday at patreon.com forward slash arseblog. So you can sign up to the Fantasy Football League, but you get all the other stuff as well. All the extra content on Patreon. You get a preview podcast for every Premier League game and for European games as well. Uh, if you're listening to this, Lewis, uh, get prepared. We're going to do a podcast series based around the All or Nothing documentary. There are midweek podcasts. We do waffles. We do statements. We do all kinds of stuff to keep you going during the interlull. There's a free audio book as well if you sign up. Patreon.com forward slash arsebog. So if you want to get on board there, that would be very much appreciated. If not, everything else, of course, remains free of charge and will do uh, forever and ever and ever. For now, though, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. If you do want to give us a review or a rating in your app of choice that would be great james and i will be here on monday with an arsecast extra so until then take it easy folks and we'll catch you on the next one cheers bye-bye
If you work out, you need to be hydrated. Hydrated. You need electrolytes. Electrolytes. You need the finest ingredients from the finest influencers. Just Influencer Zest combines spring water, almond moisture, and B7 Cranabolic scraped from the skin of your favorite influencers into a tasty, refreshing drink. So next time thirst hits, quench it with jizz. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 